Hi, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of The Cosmic Pulse, brought to you by the International Academy of Astrology. I am your host, Jen Ingress, and we are so pleased to welcome our very first guest, the world-renowned Jody Forrest. Jody is a full-time professional astrologer of 40 years and author of The Solar Arcs, Direction from the Sun, which was just released a few months ago. Also author of The Ascendant, published in 2007, and in 1995, The Book of Fate, a historical fantasy trilogy, The Rhymer and the Ravens. She also co-authored with Stephen Forrest, Skymates in the 80s, and in 2002, Skymates 2, The Composite Chart. Jody is an instructor at the International Academy of Astrology and former education director. Welcome, Jody. Thanks for being here with us today. Well, thank you, Jen. I'm delighted to be here with you. Um, we're thinking that uh, today we could cover a few uh, topics, um, including uh, the solar arcs, direction from the sun, and perhaps about how you came into astrology and built your astrology career, um, and as well as your experience and take on IAA or the International Academy of Astrology as a school, as well as your role as former education director. Mm -hmm. Okay. So to start off, could you talk a little bit about uh, IAA as a school and its curriculum? Sure. IAA was founded in 1997 by Ina Stanley, and it is the first all online college of astrology out there. And when Ina started, uh, she and her students were typing in chat rooms. So you can imagine the amount of dedication and determination that it took for Ina to found and to start that school, given the state of technology at that time. And the school has grown over the years. It has been through um, a lot of work on the curriculum. And in besides the regular faculty with the regular courses, uh, we also have in an awful lot of guest speakers and guest lecturers. And besides the main curriculum, um, there are an awful lot of electives. So we have a lot of students who come back just to further their education. And we have a lot of people dropping in who just want to learn something in particular without necessarily going through the entire diploma program. The diploma program consists of seven courses. That's in the natal studies module. And at the end of the seven courses, um, you get a natal studies certificate. And at that point, you can go on to the rest of the diploma program, or you can decide to stop there, depending really just on what your own reasons for learning astrology are. Um, it takes roughly four years to get through the program if you're taking one course per semester. Um, the work is demanding. Uh, there's homework, and it is very thorough. It's very well constructed. I've been around astrology a long time, and I've looked at a lot of curriculums from an awful lot of different programs and teachers. And I wanted to teach at IAA because I think it's the best curriculum I've seen. Um, you get a grounding in classical astrology. 
I, which I think is important because that's what the modern astrology that most of us practice today comes from. And I think it's important to understand your roots as an astrologer, to understand where some of the controversies in astrology come from, to understand where some of the conventions in astrology come from. And you get a very thorough view of, uh, view of just how wide our field is. Um, so I'm delighted uh, to be working here. And I've wanted to teach here for a very long time. Um, I watched Ina getting her Regulus Award in 2008 and immediately thought, I really want to teach there. For those who don't know, the Regulus Award is a, an award given by the three major astrological organizations at every United Astrology Congress. And there are Regulus Awards for different um, branches of astrology. And Ina received the very well-deserved Regulus Award for education at that URAC. And I thought, I really want to teach there. But, you know, by that time in 2008, they were no longer just working in chat rooms. Um, and I am both busy and introverted, and both those things sort of worked against me for applying to work there until I saw a notice from Ina on Facebook a few years later and thought, oh, that was my chance. So I uh, got in touch with her promptly, and I've been teaching here ever since in one capacity or another. That's fantastic. And I believe you teach uh, a course that doesn't have homework or grades. It's a introduction or beginner exposure to astrology that then prepares uh, someone who might be interested in going into the diploma program. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, the course is basic, basic astrology, and it's a 10-week course, and there is no homework, there are no grades, um, so it's an ideal learning situation, really. Um, for the students, uh, there's no pressure. We designed that because we realized that uh, Natal Studies 1 is probably a little heavy for people who have know absolutely nothing about astrology. And basic astrology will get you prepared to take natal studies one, um, which can be quite complex. And it's a joy to teach. It's lots of fun. I have motivated adults who don't feel any pressure about being there and who are there purely because they want to be. And it is a joy to teach basic. I have lots of fun. And I understand you use um, Astro Dice as well in, in your courses and that I'm do you bring in um, some aspects of your other courses, like since, um, you know, you're an author and you're a creative or creative storyteller, do you incorporate that in the beginners or introduction course? Um, not much. If Sometimes I get questions that I expand on when I'm answering them. And occasionally we will dip into some of the uses of astrology or techniques of astrology, but, but rather little. Where I do, um, where I apply te creative techniques is in a course I'm very excited about teaching, and that's a professional studies module five. So you need to have been through our other courses um, in general before you take that. Um, because you need a knowledge of basic astrology and you need to know at least a little bit about transits secondary progressions and solar arcs, um, what they are basically, um, how they are set up. And that one um, is creating stories to illustrate your readings. 
In fact, its original title, which I meant as funny, was uh, Telling Lies for Fun and Profit, <laughs> Constructing Stories to Illustrate Your Readings. And the joke there is that stories are not true in the sense that they are not real. Um, if you are in inviting, inventing a work of fiction, it all comes out of your own head. It's not true the way um, the Declaration of Independence was signed on July 4th, 1776 is true. It's a lot of made up facts that are telling a good story to hold people's attention. And this is where astrology comes in. I think the best fiction illustrates a theme. It makes you think about a theme, um, a basic human dilemma that we all share, conflicts or issues that we all go through. And you can apply some creative writing techniques to inventing stories to illustrate your readings whether you're doing a natal chart or whether you're doing a current events reading. Um, the planets are the characters. The signs are the plot or the conflict. And the houses are the settings. And from there, uh, we go on for an awful lot of possibilities of you know, things you could concoct about, say, a Pluto and Scorpio in the third house character. And that's where the astro dice come in because a lot of class time can be wasted hemming and hawing if I say, give me a planet. And there's mumble, 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 understandably until I hear Jupiter. But if I roll the dice, uh, I've got them right there. It saves time, plus it's fun. Um, there are three dice in astro dice. And thanks to you, I got another set of them. I had seen them in the eighties, but didn't know where I could find another set. One set just has the planets, one set just has the signs, one set just has the houses. Oh, the planet ones also has the nodes of the moon. Yeah, so those are a lot of fun. Um, and, and people can use them for divination as well, I've read. Um, but going back to the creative storytelling, I know that um, there's been a lot of uh, development or change in the astrological field. Um, over the past, you know, Jupiter cycle or, you know, 12 years. And, you know, when I was, when I first started my formal ast astrological education with IAA, um, you know, not just at IAA, but, you know, attending mm -hmm. uh, different conferences or workshops, I noticed that there was a lot of um, reference to, you know, mythology, often, you know, the Greek classical mythology or, you know, Western stories, which mm -hmm. are wonderful. And I'm just wondering if you've noticed a shift um, to incorporate maybe uh, storytelling from um, cultures outside of the Greek or Roman um, mythology. Um, yes, I have. I think the person whose work we need to look at for that is Wendy Ashley. Oh, okay. Um, she's done a lot of work about how to analyze a chart and come up with mythology from all kinds of different cultures that might help the astrologer illustrate something in that chart or understand some of the themes that are unfolding within that person's life. And she knows a great deal about cross-cultural mythology, so it isn't uh, limited just to classical Greece and Rome. I've done some articles um, applying astrology to the Norse gods, the Norse mythology. 
um, which is in large part an inspiration for the historical fantasy trilogy I wrote. So it seems to me that Odin um, has a lot of similarities to Mercury with some interesting differences or interesting amplifications. Um, Venus is Freya, Mars is Tyr, Jupiter is Thor. And I have some other um, articles in that series kind of cooking in my head, but they're not on paper. And what's been a lot of fun for me about that is I had a few clients of Scandinavian descent who got in touch with me and said, I want you to read my chart with all the Norse pantheon. And that was huge fun. And you can apply it. It doesn't apply perfectly, but then I don't think mythology ever applies perfectly and totally and in every detail to real life. It informs it and underlies it because it speaks to archetypal energies that are at work within our psyches. Um, but there isn't really a total one-to-one -one correspondence, I think, in any pantheon, because they're just, for one thing, there are too many gods in any culture's pantheons, more gods than there are planets, um, more deities than there are planets in the major asteroids. Yeah, and we can go back uh, to the Babylonian times or, um, you know, in, Ash in the history of, um, you know, I don't want to just say the history of astrology because uh, it's also the history of modern science uh, because modern science, um, you know, basically was developed um, out of astrological motivation and it was all blended together um, basically before the age of enlightenment, um, like the with Descartes and um, where people started wanting to look for, you know, replicable, um, you know, facts or evidence and uh, the discovery of our more modern planets. But um, that kind of ties into going back to the IAA curriculum that, um, you know, when I was a student um, in you know, starting in 2009, um, even though Project Hindsight had started, um, was it in the late 90s or early 2000s with the three Roberts? Um, um, it was the early 90s. Oh, early 90s. Okay. Um, I, it, it, the traditional techniques that are very um, kind of standard now today um, in astrology, like perfections, um, you know, zodiacal releasing and, you know, um, whole sign systems, that wasn't the kind of standard norm or practice, um, you know, in 2009, it, it, it like even 24, 2012, 2013, it still was kind of not um, so, so well known as it is today. Um, and the IAA curriculum, when I went through the program, had um, traditional astrology as kind of um, in, a, in a later section um, in like the professional studies module. Um, can you talk about how the curriculum is different now? Well, um, the curriculum is kind of um, ever in progress and ever in process is one way of looking at it. Um, we did an awful lot of thinking about when we wanted to introduce which concept, uh, which concepts needed to be learned before which other concepts. 
And there were a few um, areas of astrology that it's not that they didn't fit anywhere, but we made some interesting choices about where we were going to put um, an important, but not, um, what's the word I want? Not wildly important part of astrology, but it's still good to know. So here and there, some uh, bits of information were tacked into this course or that course. I think history of astrology used to be a course all by itself. And it is now an appendix uh, to Natal Studies 1. And I think it's important for astrologers to know their history, but I can understand um, setting up, setting things up so that students have access to it, but they do not necessarily need to learn it as in memorize it for an exam. But I think it's important that we all have that reference material. Um, basic astrology used to be two courses, two semesters, and has been condensed into, into the one 10 week, which I think is a good decision. Um, the order of courses has been rearranged. Um, the, what you need to go through as your final exams for diploma studies has been rearranged and now comes at the end of Native Studies 1, um, calculations and interpretation interpreting what you, the chart that you have calculated. Uh, also, some other things have been added um, as electives, such as two sem a two-semester course on counseling skills, basic counseling skills, do's and don'ts for astrologers. It obviously does not train you to be a therapist, but it's extremely useful in understanding some things about the psyche and understanding about working with clients and what may be the only time you ever see this person. Um, I'm very, very happy this is there. When I first started doing readings, I really felt like I needed some counseling skills training other than you know, the helpline training I had taken. So I went to all the local therapists I knew and begged for help. And they set up a couple of courses that were basically, as I've described them, counseling skills for non-therapists who are still working with people. I guess alternative um, therapists or alternative practitioners was the, the phrase that they used. So I'm delighted to see that um, available to us now. Uh, and I also understand uh, that the traditional element has been also tweaked so it runs uh, side by side the modern um, the modern um, astrology. So somebody who's learning astrology gets exposed um, to the um, modern as well as um, traditional. And I think that's why it's so cool that the, that you mentioned like the history is at the beginning mm -hmm. to give a context of um, you know, you know, where the modern kind of uh, comes from, as well as, you know, the traditional. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we do teach modern at the same time as traditional, which I think is a, was brilliant in the design of the curriculum, because each type of astrology informs the other. You will be a better modern astrologer if you know traditional. And in my opinion, it's easier to learn traditional and find your way through it if you also know modern. Um, much of what people, I think, decide to study, decide to specialize in, I should say, as astrologers, 
uh, depends on what they want to do with their knowledge of astrology. Some students want to do readings. Some students are learning just so that they can help um, themselves and their friends and family with astrology. Some people are much more interested in research. Um, some people have a more academic viewpoint about it. They may be working in a, a program that, uh, in which it is to their advantage to know something about the history of astrology or medieval astrology. It's been um, fascinating for me, and I am currently thinking through whether I want to use just the traditional rulerships when I do orreries. Orrery is a very old branch of astrology um, in which an astrologer casts a chart for the moment that she first fully understands the question that the client is asking. That is, if there's a subtext of the question, she figures out what the subtext is, which is important. Um, and when Orrery started, it's one of the oldest branches of astrology. Uh, we didn't know that Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto existed. So some of the rules of Orrery um, go back to that time. There are Ori astrologers who use the traditional rulers and Ori astrologers who use the modern rulers. There are lots of decisions that you have to make about what Ori rules you will adopt for yourself. Um, so what I jokingly refer to is my quote, deal with the universe, end quote. This is from the late astrologer, Diana Stone. My deal with the universe about doing Ori had been to use the modern rulers too. But then I realized after working with um, Orrery astrologer and faculty member Elena Lumen at IAA that I was having better luck finding things usually with the traditional rulers. And I still have a lot, a lot farther to go there. Lost objects is a subdivision of Orrery. Um, theoretically, you can cast a chart that will let you locate a lost object. Um, that I could not have simplified that anymore. I think. Yeah, I I love orary. I mean, mm -hmm. being an Aries myself, um, learning uh, predictive techniques. Um, you know, looking at um, you know the secondary progression. Um, you know, solar arcs, transits, and then um, the solar return, which you know. Um, I believe are still like uh, staples of productive techniques, which um, I love. Uh, as a student, um, you know, being aware of other divinatory techniques like tarot, um, where it's like in the moment, you don't need birth information. It was just um, this, this like light or excitement of like what there's some version of that in astrology mm -hmm. like you just can just look at one chart and of that moment mm -hmm. it was like what is that um, but um and you know i i i love uh orary and i know that um there are astrologers who uh, specialize in that technique and if you could share with us a little bit in terms of um, what kind of astrologer you you consider yourself to be and how you um, first got exposed to astrology that eventually led to your career. I know there's like a whole bunch of questions in that. Um, That's okay. Well, let's start on. Um, let's start at the second question, which is sure. how I began uh, learning astrology. 
I am not positive what provoked my interest, but I started reading astrology books when I was eight years old, and I just never stopped, um, <laughs> is, is the short version. Um, I was very, very interested in parapsychology, and I learned to read really young for some reason. So when I got through the parapsychology shelf in the public library, what was right next door to it was astrology. And I just, I thought, oh, that looks interesting too. So I started reading books and got fascinated. And as I said, it just never stopped. Um, I was setting up charts informally based on the books that I could get hold of. Um, astrology for yourself, astrology for teens, write your own horoscope. Uh, are three of the titles that I remember, and Ronald Davison, Astrology. And these books have listings of your Venus was in Aries if you were born between this date and that date. So I looked at that and thought, oh, cool, I can figure this out because my friend was born, say, 50% of the way between these two dates. So his Venus must be at 15 Aries, right in the middle. And it seems logical, but... Uh, you know, my 14-year-old self had not taken retrogradation into account. So uh, it was not entirely accurate by any means. Also, I didn't know how to set up the houses. I had some idea of figuring out what somebody's ascendant was based on what time of day they were born and what time of year it was. So I would set up the houses that way and then put the planets in them with my extrapolated positions. But looking back on it, I think I had the chart maybe 75% accurate, which isn't uh, close enough for astrological work. But, you know, I was having fun with friends and they informed me I was doing pretty good readings for them when I was in high school. Um, I'm not sure I agree with that <laughs> at all, but it has been a very, very old interest. And I kept studying it through college and through graduate school because it was a way to relax from studying um, French and Spanish. And is the Ronald Davison the Davison of the Davison composite charts? Yes, it's the very same. Nice. And can you share um, some other um, authors that you were reading at that time that you would find in the local library at like between eight to 14 years old? <laughs> uh, Derek and Julia Parker. Evangeline Adams, Catherine de Jersey. Um, I was four, I turned 14 in 1970. I'm trying to think of what was out then. Well, uh, the astrology magazines, astrology yearbooks, certainly, but those are the books that I primarily remember. Oh, Alan Leo, Noel Till. There were a lot of people who were publishing by then. Wonderful. And some of the people I've mentioned are uh, uh, from a considerably long time ago. And and so it sounds like you were basically aware of um, midpoints of, of some some sort um, without, you know, any instruction, which is pretty amazing. When you talked about looking at like uh, what sounds like information in an ephemeris and figuring mm -hmm. out like halfway between. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and um, do you feel comfortable maybe touching upon 
<clears throat> sorry, what parts of your chart you think would have, um, you know, brought out that astrological interest in you, or maybe if you've looked at a transit at that time, like eight is pretty, pretty young to be um, figuring that stuff out on your own, I would think. Well, um, I think that somehow or other, most of my brain went into languages and symbols. Mm. I cannot navigate my way out of a paper bag in a town where I've lived for 30 or 40 years. I have no sense of direction. I have a dent. I don't have a bump of direction. And, but that seems to be what my mind does is language. I was reading pretty easily when I was in kindergarten. Um, before I got to kindergarten, and I don't know why. Another factor is probably I'm the youngest of five kids and everybody reads and everybody read out loud to me whenever I wanted. Mm. So that certainly helped with the you know, hearing the word, seeing the word on the page. Um, and the, the child brain is pretty plastic about languages, um, especially the first couple of years of life, but if you put, say, a four-year-old child in a foreign country, they will pick up the native language of that country easily and effortlessly, mm -hmm. and they won't have an accent. Yep. Um, starting at about 10 or 11, uh, that changes because once the vocal cords mature, they get their, their muscles, they're used to forming certain sounds certain ways, and they lose some plasticity. So people who learn the language after 10 or 11 will probably have an accent. Yeah, and... Um I understand that also is true for like facial recognition across different ethnicities. Oh, um, that's interesting. Yeah, it's um, it's like that bridge. Um, so if a person, um, you know, grows up in a pretty homogeneous like ethnic makeup, and mm -hmm. then say in their adulthood they go and live in like a different um, group of people, uh, it's very hard for them to differentiate. Uh, the faces within that other, uh, you know, ethnic group. That's so that, yeah, so that kind of makes me think of these Law and Order episodes where, you know, there's like um, profiling and mm -hmm. um, the witness is given, you know, um, a bunch of suspects and they can't really differentiate the faces of these suspects because they're all of one kind of um, ethnicity and they just kind of identify based on like an article of clothing or something, but basically they can't, um, they have trouble identifying different faces, which goes to, you know, like the stereotype of, you know, um, you know, people of a certain kind of uh, ethnicity have certain facial features. And then they, that's all that the per that person who hasn't grown up amongst that ethnicity, they all, that's all they kind of see. Yeah, their visual facial pattern recognition mm -hmm. is geared to one race, but I suspect they get better at it after a while living in the different culture. Yeah, I, I think it, it might improve. I mean, I have a friend who lived in, in taught in Korea, and she recounts how at the beginning she could only categorize like three different kinds of faces. Oh. <laughs> you kind of laugh about that. But, uh, but going back to... Um, 
you know, and I think that's another feature of um, horary is that, or astrology is that by looking at the ascendant, um, it can uh, explain or you can see or identify um, astrological placements or astrological placements influence a person's um, physical appearance. And I mean, maybe you can mention a little bit about that in in your Ascendant um, book. And I remember being at one of your talks at SODA and you, I just loved how you described the Ascendant as not just, you know, how you look, but also like what you're equipped, what terrain you're equipped to navigate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, the Ascendant is the sign and the degree of the sign that was rising when you took your first breath. Um, so that first breath, you are breathing in, you are, well, I think there's a Latin root for the French word to breathe in, which is inspirer, and inspiration is an in-breath, and it looks like our word inspiration. So it's as if you inspire yourself with your own chart, but just by breathing in the astrological energies that are all around you at the moment of birth. So beautiful. And since the ascendant introduced you to the world, that's when your body appeared on the planet. Your body is what you live in during your time on the earth, um, unless we figure out a way to upload our consciousnesses to machines, which I'm not sure I would want to do. Um, your body is the vehicle that carries you around on the planet. Um, there's an old uh, Middle Ages term for walking. If someone says, how did you get here? They might say in a carriage, in a cart, on a horse, or they might say shanks mare. Shanks mare means that the horse they rode was their shanks, their legs. That's how they got there. So you travel around through the world in your body. You interact with the world through your body. And the ascendant, I think, is similar. It's like a container that is wrapped around all of the chart. And it is the vehicle that you were born with because it was designed to take you through the terrain that your ascendant says you need to navigate in this world. It's sort of where you were placed energetically, what signs energies you need to develop um, in order for your persona to work. The persona is the interface between you and the outside world. And I think that's fascinating talking about horary um, and techniques and how particularly with the ascendant, uh, you can get information about, uh, you know, particular features of a person. For example, someone with like an Aries ascendant might have um, kind of a, like a ruddier complexion compared to somebody with a cancer ascendant who has um or taurus ascendant who has um maybe like fuller features or like a more comely um kind of look about them mm -hmm. and i know that you wrote a book about the ascendant and i heard you talk give a talk in um at soda about the ascendant maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that because you have a really um, insightful way to delve deeper into the significance or the ascendant other than just the physical features. Okay. I think the ascendant 
which is uh, literally the sign and the degree of that sign that were rising in the east when you took your first breath separate from your mother's body. Your ascendant introduces you to this world and it was the sign that was rising, the sign that was ascending at the moment of birth. So the ruler of your ascendant, in some ways, we can think of as the Lord of that chart or the Lord of the incarnation that you are living in. I think that the ascendant is like your astrological clothing, your astrological uniform that you came dressed in. Um, it's astrological behavioral modification guidance is a good way for me to think about it. Because imagine you are set down on a planet you're set down in a civilization that corresponds to the energies of your ascendant. No matter what your sun and moon sign are, if you're set down on the planet with Aries rising, the world feels like a place where you must learn to be assertive. You must learn to be confident and direct and to use your energy wisely um, to lead, to inspire, it's a Mars ruled ascendant, so much of your life depends on how you respond to that Aries ascendant, how you respond to your Mars placement, too. Um, I'm remembering a professor I had many years ago. Um, I don't think she was even as tall as four feet ten. Tiny, tiny woman. Um, and small bones. It really, she looked absolutely frail if you were to just see a picture of her standing next to taller people. But when she walked into a room, there was no doubt who was in charge of that room. Um, I suspect she had Aries rising on Mars right on the ascendant. I never got to see her chart. Um, just a very powerful, commanding, and encouraging and inspiring presence. I found out her son was in Virgo because she happened to mention her birthday one day, and I was rather startled because of how I had her pegged, and I thought, okay, that's the ascendant. That's how she's presenting herself, and I imagine, like a lot of rather small people, she learned early on to be assertive and to make noise so that she didn't get discounted or overlooked or treated like a child, and that was a case where physically it helped her to respond to the energies of her ascendant. Um, it helped her a great deal, I'm sure. So that's what I mean in part when I say the ascendant is like behavioral modification techniques. So imagine this Virgo woman who needs to find meaningful work and do it well in order to improve her self-esteem, lands on a planet that feels like a battle zone, that feels dangerous. She has to protect herself. And it's also exciting and it's energizing and she really needs to go for what she wants. If she doesn't respond to that Aries Ascendant, um, she may pick the wrong work. She may let herself be pushed around a little bit too much at that job. But a good response to the Aries Ascendant helped guide her through her life and not be taken advantage of. Um, our Ascendants don't always compensate for physical trait, like this woman's height, like her stature. But they can protect the rest of your chart. They can express the rest of your chart and they can mediate between you and the outside world. Um, let's say somebody else with an airy sun uh, lands on the earth with cancer rising. 
And they look around and they are meant to develop the power of their will and become braver that leave the world with a stronger will than they were, than they had when they arrived. And this is typically done by creating challenges and carrying them out, um, by having adventures, by going after what we want to live a dynamic, exciting, interesting life. But if this Aries warrior person arrives on the planet with cancer rising, it's as if he or she landed on a planet that was a matriarchy. Um, and cancer values, learner values of gentleness and reflection and nurturing and imagination and self-searching and family connections. Um, that's the sort of world that this warrior finds him or herself in. So how does, how does he or she do this? How does he or she blend this? How does he become that iron fist in the velvet glove? Um, the ascendant is just fascinating because it, it's like the filter between us and the rest of the world. It's like a car that you drive around in the world all of your life. And that car is designed for the territory that you have to cross. And the rest of your chart may be more or less comfortable with that territory. But integrating your ascendant with the rest of the chart, I guarantee helps us feel more grounded, more fully present in our bodies, more fully present in our lives. Um, it's the wrapping that the chart came dressed in, the way your body is the wrapping that's around you. You live in your body, you move around through the world in your body. The ascendant works the same way. Your chart moves around through the world and interacts with the outside world through the ascendant. The ascendant is the doorway and everything from within your chart has to go through the ascendant doorway and everything from the outside has to come in through the ascendant doorway to you which is why I call it your entry vehicle. It carries you around through your life. And it's also behavioral modification suggestions. Lovely. I, um, it makes me think or wonder, um, it, you don't really have to comment on this because I have another question uh, that connects to the uh, more traditional um, significations. Um, but, you know, so say with the Cancer Ascendant and uh, Sun and Aries, so for the person who had, who has a Cancer Ascendant with the Sun in Cancer, it seems to me that integration, you know, there's less, you know, it's more, uh, it's already there, like it's already blended, there's probably less work to do or you know, it's kind of almost like what you see matches with what that person. Exactly. You know, and I mean, would you say it's like, like an easier placement to have? I mean, for at the risk of comparing? Well, much would depend whether the sun is in the first or the 12th house, mm -hmm. um, for one thing. But yes, when the sun and the ascendant are in the same sign, what I tell clients is that means, you know, what you see is what you get. When mm -hmm. people look at you, what they see is what they get. Yeah. But what they see should be what they get. Right. It makes their lives easier to have the, mm -hmm. be a double something, to have the sun and the ascendant the same sign, because um, there are fewer signs that they have to get right. There are fewer signs that they have to figure out. There is very little conflict between who they are and how they need to behave. Mm -hmm. um, Beautiful. 
when there's then, a harsh aspect, there's a lot more conflict. It yeah. Makes the stakes of getting cancer right higher to be a double cancer, but it does make it easier to get them both right. Yeah. And then, so if you had like Cancer Ascendant and Capricorn Sun, there'd be more like conflict or struggle maybe between mm -hmm. that person's identity and their interactions or relationships with others, I suppose. Yes, absolutely. Um, and then, the and then going to them, uh, oh, sorry. Sure, go ahead. Going with the, you know, traditional um, part of um, uh, adversely placed or um, benefically placed. So with the chart ruler, like or the ruler of the ascendant, if that planet is, say, retrograde or in a detrimental sign or is besieged or that kind of thing, would you say that that makes the ascendant or that person's like boundaries or filter like weaker? Um, potentially. The ascendant is probably the part of the chart that involves the most active learning over one's lifetime. We are not born with our ascendants working. We're not born with good social skills. We're not born able to look at somebody and tell whether they're dangerous or sick or uh, have very complicated and not very nice motives. Little kids don't get that. This is why little kids are told, don't talk to strangers because they don't have enough time on the planet to be able to judge whether or not the stranger is safe. That's something that happens over time. We learn how to behave appropriately through our ascendant and some people never really learn a whole lot about their ascendants. If someone is awkward and goofy and not poised and prone to putting her foot in her mouth or saying the wrong thing at the wrong time or doesn't mean to offend people but somehow manages to, gives people the wrong impressions about herself and what she wants, there's a chance, in my opinion, that they have not fully integrated their ascendant. I would call that underdoing the ascendant. It makes you feel kind of skin and raw around other people. Overdoing the ascendant feels to me like the, the uniform is glued onto the person. It's hard for them to let their hair down. Um, it's hard for them to relax. They're just as formal with people they've just met as they are with their family members. Mm -hmm. So we learn it over time. But this is why little kids make such uh, funny and interesting uh, mistakes. It's why Art Linkletter used to start his kids say the darndest things shows by saying to the kid on the chair, what did your parents tell you not to say? <laughs> Evil way to get around the parental instructions. So we learn the ascendant over time. It is frequently a pattern of learned behaviors and we can always learn it better than we currently know how to do it. It's more difficult to have an ascendant that conflicts with the rest of your chart, but I think it also promotes a whole lot more self-examination and self-analysis, which is, well, in my opinion, never a bad thing. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of uh, aspects to astrology. Um, there's symbolisms and techniques. Um, and I think the ascendant is um, a fascinating one um which brings me to you know how did you i mean you wrote the book a book about the ascendant and um most recently a book on solar arcs and those are kind of you know um 
different techniques. One is like natal reading, uh, the, like an, in, you know, something that astrology, astrology students uh, learn to incorporate in natal readings at the beginning of their mm-hmm. studies. And then solar arcs is like a predictive technique. So can you talk about um, your book and how you uh, came about choosing that topic to write a book on the solar arcs? Um, a lot of my writing is inspired by things that my students seem to have trouble getting. Um, I had noticed that the ascendant, a lot of students had trouble understanding it, and I certainly had trouble understanding it. So I felt motivated to write that um, to promote people's understanding of what it was and how to work with it and with many different ways to think about it. And solar arcs was similar. Solar arcs was the questions, you know, question number two, most of my students had the most often. And once it occurred to me how to look at them and how to explain them, and once I started applying it to the charts of famous people just to see if I was barking up the wrong tree, I realized that I could, I hope, be helpful in people's understanding of solar arcs too. Um, Solar arcs are, well, to calculate solar arcs, you take the amount of distance that the secondary progressed sun has moved over somebody's life. Say, if you're 40, your secondary progressed sun has moved approximately 40 degrees. There are ways to calculate that without a computer, but I, I won't get into it here in the podcast. Um, Sorry, do you th- therefore, the solar arc and the secondary progressed sun? Yeah, they, the solar arc sun has moved exactly the same distance as the secondary progressed sun. Right. Okay. They are the same thing. What's different is that you take that number of degrees in minutes, say 40 degrees, zero minutes, and you move all of the planets in that chart ahead in the zodiac by 40 degrees to get their solar arc placements. So it's as if you take the whole chart, not just the sun, and move everything ahead 40 degrees in the zodiac. And voila, that's the solar arc chart. Since solar arc, solar arcs are predicated, they are created by the, the arc of the distance the secondary progressed sun has moved. I looked at this and thought, well, then probably, what if there are a special kind of secondary progression that just refers to the sun, to the development of the sun? And I think that's what they are. Um, The sun is a vitally important part of our birth chart. Sun sign astrology has stayed around a long time because it is powerful and because the sun is the most powerful part of our chart, very typically. Even if there is a lot going on in the chart that says, oh, this person's moon is very strong. The sun represents the human ego. The sun is our sanity. And if we're not sane and we don't have a healthy, coherent ego that knows who it is and knows what it wants and isn't swayed by other people to be somebody it's not, if you have a healthy sun, then it's easier for you to get the needs of all the rest of the planets, all the rest of your psyche met. So I think every time we have a solar arc aspect, we are given a chance to become more sane to have a healthier ego. I don't mean a conceited ego, I mean a normal, healthy, um, well-integrated ego. Our solar arcs give us that opportunity all the time. They help us strengthen our sun. I think part of psychotherapy involves figuring out where you were wounded, understanding the wounds, working on the wounds, re-experiencing the feelings that you felt when you first got those wounds, 
in light of the understanding you have of them now. You need the insight and in, onto the wounds and you need someone to help you work with them. But I really think the other part of mental health is strengthening your sane side. And that means strengthening your son. I had kind of an epiphany one day. I think I was in my 40s by then. It's sort of embarrassing how slow I am to figure some things out. When I realized that my own wounded side and the reactions I have that are based on what happened to me in childhood rather than rooted in the here and now, um, the places where I was hurt will never go away. The wounded person inside of me will never leave. You can't um, amputate her from the rest of your psyche. You can't do a wounded sidectomy and get rid of it the way you can do an appendectomy. But you can strengthen your sane side. And your sane side is a lot better able to take care of your wounded side than your wounded side is to take care of your sane side. So strengthening your sane side helps you understand your wounded side and helps you be more gentle with it and patient with it. Um, the stronger you are, the saner you are, um, you will not ever stop hearing the voice of your, your wounded side and your inner monologue, but that voice will be softer and softer and you will get better and better at holding its hand and helping it get through what it needs to get through, the stronger your son is and the saner you are. So every single solar arc you ever have is a chance to improve your sanity and therefore help your wounded side in the long run. That's a really, a really insightful way to describe that because as you were just speaking, it I was thinking, I was hearing kind of Chiron or moon themes with like potentially like well Chiron the wounded healer um, and often our wounds um, come from like nurturing um, and our needs and that's moon and then mm -hmm. when you talk about um, mental health in our sun and um, you know mental health is from my understanding um, defined not just as a deficit or absence of mental unwellness mm -hmm. but defined as um seen in terms of mental wellness like happiness um fulfillment in life um and when you're describing the sun as um our sane um ego i i hear like i our identity and uh, being integrated and that uh, process of therapy or that word, world, uh, word healing, um, you know, really implies like a, a process that's cyclic that, you know, like you said, it's, it's not like uh, a one shot thing and it's all wrapped up and it's never revisited. Um, and that idea of cycles is uh, a, a part of astrology as well. So when people go through these challenging aspects like um, with solar arcs. Um, can you talk about how, you know, certain aspects in solar arc, like with our oppositions or squares with that, mm -hmm. then um, be times where the, the wounded or um, things that are challenging our sanity um, tend to come up more? 
if um, you're having a challenging solar arc, you are getting something like midterm exams on that part of your psyche mm. and how your response to it so far mm. has potentially strengthened or weakened your sun. Every solar arc you'll ever have, even if the sun isn't part of that aspect, can be used to strengthen your sun. So yes, it will bring up wounds um, so that you have a chance to look at them and heal them. I realized thinking about solar arcs that you know, I've had therapist friends tell me that um, when you're working on the same old, old issue again, you're actually not going around in circles. If you're doing a good job, you're kind of spiraling up. You're at the same place, but you have different insights on it now. So if say you have a grand, grand square in your chart, any time a planet's solar arcs to put developmental pressure on that grand square, you are reviewing how you experience that grand square in your psyche. And you have a chance to respond to it in a healthier way. You have a chance to use it in a way that helps strengthen your sun. I think of the sun as the king or the queen of the chart, depending on your gender identification mm -hmm. or sovereign of the chart, if you're non-binary. And my favorite metaphor for telling stories for the solar arc is to pretend that the sun is the ruler of the chart and all the other planets are the courtiers um, that the sun gets to boss around and when you have a solar arc your sun your sovereign has sent this courtier or this knight out on an errand to help the kingdom to help the country to help the king in solar arcs all the planets are servants of the sun the sun has sent them out on what used to be called errand riding for the king. Um, so it's as if the solar arc planet is visiting another part of the chart with a message from the king saying, hey, if we do this well right now, you will help the kingdom. You will help the king and the kingdom flourish and grow. And different planets will have different opinions, say, about the courtiers who are approaching them and what they're being asked to do, depending on the nature of the planets and the signs and the aspect involved. Um, but that's a really good way to think about solar arcs. Uh, the sovereign of your chart is sending, an, sending another planet to go do an errand for it that will help the, help the sovereign and help the country. And it, it just kind of occurred to me, um, you know, when we look at or compare other techniques, like, you know, when we look at solar return or secondary progressions, or even um, transits, like with secondary progressions, the slower planets, you know, we don't look at them as closely unless they're, um, you know, partile or exact or within a degree or two aspect making an aspect but with secondary i'm uh, sorry solar arcs would you say then the slower or outer planets can have more um of a role to play yes definitely yeah um it's also a way to interpret what's going on with all of the planets rather than not doing secondary progressions on the outer planets because they move too slowly are not doing trans transits on the inner planets because they move too fast. Mm -hmm. It slows the planets down and gives them therefore a chance to move more deeply into the psyche and do whatever deep work they're doing in the psyche. 
they're also a godsend when you are rectifying charts. Um, when you're rectifying a chart, you are rectifying or correcting or finding the correct birth time. When someone knows their time of birth within maybe six hours, um, I will do a rectification for them. That's actually one of the teachers I courses I teach at IAA too is how to rectify. Rectification. Can you tell us more about that technique and um, you know what's involved? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, solar arcs are very useful in rectification. By the way, um, rectification is attempting to figure out what time somebody was born. In my opinion, if you know their birth time within about six hours, um, I think 24 hour rectifications are, there's just too much chance you could be wrong, truly. Um, so that's not something I want to take on, but I teach a class on rectification here and I recommend um, allowing not longer than a six hour possible time frame with a few exceptions that I, would, um, I could go into in the course. Rectification um, involves getting a list of extremely important events in the client's life just as accurately as they can possibly remember them. And not everybody has a very good memory for dates. So sometimes people will remember, um, I got really, really sick this year and I don't remember if it was 2009 or 10. I'm sorry, I just don't remember. So there's really no way to work with um, that particular event unless you use solar arcs because you know how old they were in 2009 or 10. And you can solar arc all of their planets forward. And let's say that when they were very sick, um, their Saturn-Pluto conjunction solar arc right to their ascendant. And since the ascendant also refers to the body, that can definitely be a, a difficult time physically. But you'd have no clue about that happening, say, if you were not looking at solar arcs. That solar arc to the ascendant was really the only thing that would correlate with their being sick that year. So solar arcs will give you a lot more usable events in your client's event list than you would have if you weren't using solar arcs. Um, they're very good for timing of outer world events. Um, frequently, say, if the outer planet's solar arc to one of the angles, frequently, but not always, the person moves. I learned this from Noel Till years ago. But when solar arcs change houses, um, that can be very indicative of what somebody's ascending is. It's the differences in the birth time are what change the house cusps the most. So I want a list of at least two dozen, hopefully more, really important events in somebody's life and what happened on that day and the time frame as accurately as they can remember it. Um, it's a complicated process. It is not hard, in my opinion. It is just time consuming. So I will get the list of events. I'll write down the transits on those dates or that range of dates. I have different little rules I've set for myself about how wide a range of time I will use, say, if they just know that event happened that month. Which planets will I use that moved far enough in a month that I want to use those? Um, so I figure out just from transits um, a couple of axes that I think might be the midheaven IC or the ascendant descendant axis. 
Then I fine tune with solar arcs on a hypothetical chart that looks like the right one based on just the transits. I fine tune with solar arcs. Then I fine tune with looking at the progressed moon in the hypothetical chart. Then I, so, then I fine tune by looking at all the other secondary progressions in the hypothetical chart. I go back and forth cross-checking among three different techniques. Um, and I want a lot of events. I have talked to clients who, for, whose astrologers have rectified their chart based on one event. 24-hour rectification, they used one event. They said, okay, since Pluto was in blah, blah at this time and this thing happened to you, I think you have uh, this degree and this sign of this sign rising when it's much more complicated than that. Um, a lot of people think it's hard. It isn't hard. It's just time consuming. And you need to know a lot about natal astrology, secondary progressions, transits, and solar arcs. Um, if you don't have a pretty good, pretty thorough grounding there, it's harder to do a rectification. When you do have a thorough grounding, you will still learn so much from rectifying charts. I learned as I learned as much from rectifying charts as I think I did in my first year of doing full readings. And that's saying a lot because you actually see what kind of events might accompany somebody's solar arc moon um, conjoining Saturn. There's a whole range of events that you start seeing that might happen at that time in somebody's life. And you realize that the basic meaning of these symbols, the theme, can show up with infinite variations in a human being's life. All the variations refer back to that theme, but you really see how many possible variations there are when you start rectifying charts. So it's fun. It feels to me like I'm doing a big astrological crossword puzzle or like I'm playing space chess with astrology. It's sort of a, a big three or four dimensional puzzle even. Um, there are a lot of different techniques for doing rectification. I'm just explaining how I do it. Um, my rectification students at IAA told me that when they checked out the list of reference books, I gave them the books that have been written about rectification. Everybody does it, did it differently. Everybody described how to do it differently. That just fascinates me. Um, I'm still not thrilled about people doing 24-hour rectifications, and here's one reason why. We do not have an accurate birth time on Vladimir Putin. He's, let me see, I think he's about three years older than I am, which would make him 69 or 70 years old. A lot of astrologers have tackled rectifying this chart, and there are four different rectified birth times last time I checked. We may be up to five now. Um, that's why I don't like to do 24-hour rectifications. There's just too much of a chance you could be completely wrong. Mm -hmm. You don't know if what you're looking at is the ascendant, the descendant, the midheaven, or the IC. You have no idea. Can you give a guideline of, you know, when an astrologer might be ready to to do rectifications professionally like if an astrologer has satisfactorily rectified their own birth chart do you think or a family members do you think that's enough then to start doing it professionally or like what's your take or how when did you feel comfortable rectifying as a service 
Um, I learned from Alfie Lavoie, and Alfie is brilliant. And um, I've applied his techniques that he taught me in a somewhat different manner, different manner than he uses them. But I think if you are taught by an excellent teacher, you can probably start doing rectifications right then. I do practice ones for a while. Um, if the astrologer does rectifications that he or she has done and can turn you loose on those rectifications, um, you can learn a whole lot. I have a, a colleague who thinks that um, your knowledge of astrology really isn't full unless you can re rectify charts. I'm not sure I totally agree with that. It depends on what you want to do with your astrological practice. Not everybody has to learn to rectify charts. I get many astrologers um, send me their rectifications because they don't want to do them and they know I love it. But if you can do rectify, if you can rectify charts and you get good responses from the astrologer and the client, the client whose chart it is and the astrologer who then reads the chart, um, it's a nice side part of your practice. Um, I enjoy it, so I do a lot of rectification and I get a lot of requests. So it is definitely something that can be part of your astrological toolbox and can uh, widen your practice and bring in more clients if you want to pursue it. It is time consuming and detail oriented, but it's not difficult. When, once you understand the basic concepts, it is not hard at all. And can you tell me like what time consuming, what you mean? Um, like I know each rectification, the time it takes can vary uh, depending on, you know, the information given mm -hmm. and the like window of uh, the time range. But, you know, can you give us some kind of estimate? Like, for example, some astrologers, professional astrologers, don't really do much prep time for a consultation, like natal or forecasting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, um, some astrologers might do like half an hour to an hour, depending on the consultation. Um, so with that kind of time comparison, when you say time consuming, are we talking about like six times more, like six hours or... Like, what's the, can you give us a range of what you would consider, like, a, a short amount of time for rectification, and then, like, a low and a high range? Oh, gosh, that very, every chart is so different. Sometimes, um, say, if it's within an hour or two, and they've given you a lot of events, it sort of jumps out at you what the... Uh, AC, what the ascendant descendant and what the MCIC axis are because they're related to each other. If you're born on this part of the earth and you have this degree of this sign rising, then you have to have that degree of that other sign overhead. Um, so with some of them, it's pretty quick, three, four hours. And with some, it might take me three, four uh, full-time eight-hour days. Uh, it's you know, because I enjoy it, I don't mind this, but it, it can take a while. Okay, so it sounds to me for those like people with an Aries energy who want things really super fast, <laughs> that like a short kind of rectification time might be like three to four hours. And then a longer period would be like days. Yes. 
And when you, when you mentioned practice, like your practice, are you talking about like professional practice? Um, or a more. person who's on a career path of astrology or, or, I mean, it would be hard to imagine somebody doing rectification and then not really having a professional practice, but I suppose that's possible too. I don't know anyone who does just rectifications as their astrological practice. Um, I think that would be possible, but um, it would be a lot of long hours. I think you, I suspect you have to really love it to want to do it a lot, but I do. And having done it for many, many years, um, it's easier than it used to be. Mm -hmm. My techniques are more streamlined. It doesn't take me as long as it used to. Um, I, I remember uh, Donna Van Toen mm -hmm. describing, you know, her take on rectification and her example was like, <laughs> A client comes and they said, I was born on a boat in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> and she's like, I'm going to send you to somebody else. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes people get in touch with me and it's happened that somebody doesn't know what year she was born. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, she was born in Africa and um, she simply doesn't know what year. It didn't matter at that time, or it was too hard to record. There was unrest in that country. And I cannot help people if they don't know what year. Mm -hmm. And I cannot help people if they don't know where, because those things are really important. Yeah. And, and when Donna had said that, it occurred to me, like, yeah, like, if you're born on a boat, you're in motion. Mm -hmm. So it's like, kind of hard to pinpoint exactly. And, and for people who um, like you said, we're born in a time of, you know, unrest, um, or they're born in, um, you know, like a, a, a camp, like a refugee camp, they're displaced, mm -hmm. like, you know, and you don't have a sense of like, the timing. Um, yeah, that would that would be definitely tough. Sometimes, I did a rectification once for a woman who found out after her mother had died, she was born on the same day and month as her mother, that her mother had lied about it because she wanted them to be born on the same day. But the woman's father couldn't remember if it was the day before or the day after the actual birthday. Um, so she came in for a rectification and you know that was an unusual one because I was looking at three charts for the three possible days, all at the same place, all at the same time. But those I had to compare to the client's list of events. Mm -hmm. um, that was interesting. Sometimes people know that they were born at 8.05, but they don't know if it was a.m. or p.m. That's pretty easy to do. Mm -hmm. Or they may have um, a smear on their birth certificate and it was definitely 03, but they don't know if the number in front of the O was an 8 or a 5 mm -hmm. or an 8 or another 3. Um, you can learn a whole lot from doing rectification. So the, putting the effort into it is, is worth it to me. And I have a stationary direct Mercury in Capricorn. And I think I just like the puzzle. I like the structure. Um, I like the fact that it is, you have to look at all these astrological events and do comparisons and juggle things. Um, I suspect that people who like doing math, who enjoyed higher math, probably will enjoy doing rectification. Um, I'm not sure how accurate I am in that supposition, but I think you need the kind of brain that really likes difficult crossword puzzles 
or interesting math problems that we thought calculus was fun. But I think, like, I love how you shared that placement because, you know, that Capricorn gives you that determination, that stamina. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the station direct gives you that tremendous mental uh, focus and power. And I think that kind of explains, you know, like your early reading and, you know, your um, love of learning and all the different, um, you know, abilities and skills that you have, um, like writing, teaching, analyzing, rectifying. Some of that probably comes from a ninth house sun, which can have a lot to do with pattern recognition, which is part of astrology and certainly part of rectification. And, and where do you see um, astrology and career in your chart then? Oh, gosh, I have a Pisces midheaven. It's kind of a mystical, oracular, divinatory art. I have Venus in the 10th house, so it's working with people. And I like to do it as creatively as possible, which is also Venus. I have a third house, Jupiter-Pluto conjunction in Leo that is separated by four minutes of arc, not degrees, minutes. So, and it makes a wide opposition to my Aquarian ninth house sun. And I suppose that's some of it too. I like diving. It makes me feel happy, Jupiter, to dive very deeply and intensely into a serious psychological subject that takes a while to figure out like research uh-huh. so, so how how do you describe yourself in terms of an astrologer like we talked earlier about like there's uh, astrologers who um you know just like see themselves as horary or psychological like how do you describe or see yourself well i'm a general practitioner okay. i see clients for birth charts current events readings, relationship readings, all kinds of relationships, Um, work on just a theme in their birth chart, say relating or work or health. Um, I do some short-term transits and progressions for people who just want to check on things, say for every six months, they run a business, the timing of what they do when is very important. Um, I do relocations. Uh, I do rectification. And I teach, which is my favorite part of it. I love to teach. And I write, which is, oh gosh, I guess writing is tied with teaching for my favorite parts of astrology. Um, I'm not uh, either traditional or modern. I guess I'm an evolutionary astrologer with a strong leaning towards psychological astrology. And can you touch on if it's possible you know like evolutionary um uranian psychological how how were they different oh that's another good question um i edited a book called under one sky Uh in which 12 different astrologers using their own systems or techniques analyzed the same woman's chart and the woman herself wrote a little Uh, mini biography that you could read and see how people's interpretations came out. Um, Evolutionary astrologers, not all of us, but we tend to believe um, that the chart is your soul's lesson plan and it describes what you need to go through in this lifetime to maximize your growth and your fulfillment. Again, strengthening your son, strengthening your whole whole being. 
on that level, the chart is as it is because it's a map of how to go about learning things that you knew the least about at birth. But if you think this lifetime is all there is, or if you're agnostic about that, you can still do evolutionary astrology if you look at the chart and say, how is this chart suggesting this person can best grow with this planet and this sign in this house? What are they here to learn about it? What will help them learn these things? What sort of activities will help this part of their chart feel fulfilled and happy and well integrated? Psychological astrology tends to look at the chart as a map of the psyche and looks at the houses that are supposed to refer to parents and childhood, uh, looks at what the, the person's inner image of dad or the masculine might be, what someone's inner image of mom or the feminine might, might be, probably spends a lot of time on Pluto transits and what is coming up in that person's psyche. Um, they will often also be psychotherapists, psychological astrologers, and both fields can inform and help each other a lot. In my experience um, with therapists who have sent me their clients for readings, usually the therapist was already a client of mine, and they tell me that it really helps speed things up in terms of diagnosis because they get a real view of, oh, this says something about the energy around this person's childhood, or their mom or their dad, or why this sort of behavior is natural to them and this sort of behavior is really weird and strange and they're not used to it. Um, it's very useful for psychotherapists to know some astrology as it is for astrologers <laughs> to know some psychology. We're very different fields. Um, I am not a psychotherapist. I've had counseling skills, but I'd never call myself a therapist. Um, I'm an astrological counselor, basically, or a consultant, if you like. Uh, Uranian astrology. Um, I would, I am drawing a blank. I think Heber's work had something to do with that. And I believe that Uranian astrologers have generated an ephemeris for I can't call them imaginary planets, but sort of constructed planets. And they think that the planets that they have constructed are at least as powerful as the regular planets that we all use. Um, they have their ephemeruses for these planets. Um, oh, I didn't I, know that. I think Zeus is one of them. Apollo is one of them. They'll have names that are familiar. Vedic uh, astrology. Go ahead. Uh, no, I, I, I didn't know that the Uranian has different rulerships or something like that, too. Different planets, yeah. Yeah. Different planets would probably imply different rulerships. Go, sorry, go on. You were talking about Vedic. Um, Hindu astrology, Vedic astrology, comes out of India, and that's a different system. They use the sidereal zodiac, so you have to move everything back about 23 degrees from where it is in the tropical zodiac, which is the one most of us use. So right away, the whole chart is moved backward 23 degrees. And there are a lot of meanings that are somewhat different. Some are very different. And that's really about all I know about Vedic. I've had my chart, um, what did I have? I had a computerized Vedic report done on me once just because I was curious. But since that's not my field, um, I can't say a whole lot about it beyond what I just have. I, I noticed that there seems to be more um, as 
um, I guess, on the um, kind of snowball effect of, you know, traditional astrology. Um, and as, as more research is happening, as well as like um, cultural history, mm -hmm. um, there's with traditional, you know, as we go back further in history, we see, um, you know, the Silk Road or the Babylonian times and cross-cultural influences. And we already know, you know, that the um, Arabs basically um, saved astrology um, as, you know, it was kind of destroyed in um, the medieval times in Europe, um, that there's more, like people are looking for more um, similarities or even origins of certain traditional techniques between Vedic um, or, you know, um, ancient Arabic astrologers. Um, there is so much, um, like you said, as, as a, a student or someone who's curious about learning astrology, as you go further down like the rabbit hole per se, there's just so much out there. And a lot of courses about an awful lot of what is out there are taught at IAA, including your course on Chinese astrology, Jim, which again is very different. I think that works on Jupiter um, transits where Ju Jupiter placements because yeah, it's they, they have year a 12-year system. They have, correct me. <laughs> no, they have a, um, it's referred today in feng shui as like a god. Um, but it's not really a god. It's more the ancient Chinese were aware of um, retrograde, like the retrograde uh, dation of Jupiter. And they created this um, god to represent the motion of Jupiter without retrogradation, basically. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, they they were well watchers um, and document, you know, document documenting the sky, um, and there are older Chinese, um, like an older form, uh, lunar mansions that is a, is more similar in terms of um, having like looking at the astronomy um like a circumpolar uh, system um but the other kind that i um teach is the four pillars which is um the chart itself is actually four pillars mm -hmm. um and and that's a course that is in like the uh, professional studies module mm -hmm. yeah there are a lot of courses at IAA, and the students um, are an interesting mix, Jen. There are people who are students who've been astrologers for years. Um, I know this because one of them was president of the San Diego Astrological Society who decided he wanted to do full formal training just to fill in some what he felt were gaps in his education. And he's been teaching it himself for years. So we have pros who are coming through our program and we have total beginners and we have everywhere in between. Um, I love teaching here partly because the class sizes are small, so you can give a lot of individual attention and the students can ask a lot of questions. Um, also, I really like the attitude that IAA has toward its students. Uh, we are a student-centered 
academy. Um, because I have two degrees in education um, as well, I had to take a class in the sociology of education in which it was proposed that schools can have a tight or loose organizational structure and they can regard their students as uh, inmates, products. Oh, I'm serious. It's kind of like the public education system. No, I, I take that back. It's very much in jest. Yeah, partly. I said inmates kind of in jest, but not totally. Or or the uh, the students themselves see themselves. As inmates, yes. <laughs> oh, no. But the, the school can decide that they're like inmates or problems and try to exercise a great deal of control over what they're studying and how they're behaving. They can look at the students as products. You know, when you leave our university, you will be able to do X and you will represent this university in Y way. Um, they can look at students as clients or they can look at them when they're doing professional training programs. And this is a professional training program as their colleagues, their future colleagues. So that's how I consider my students. They are my future or my current colleagues. That's and that's. That's so beautiful. Um, I, you know, that that description that you just gave, it makes me think of um, classmates um, mm -hmm. at IAA. Um, and, you know, um, many came with um, established professions. Yes. that I call like in the mundane world, you know, like typical professions that that are open um, or like open on um, job sites or just, you know, professions that are your kind of status quo or typical professions, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, and they've also either continued to blend um the, like establish their astrology practice their professional astrology practice pulling or blending on their professional like their established profession mm -hmm. um which goes to your point about um becoming professional astrologers after going through the diploma program, which is a uh, professional certification, um, rigorous training. And I think that um, we're so lucky to have you as part of the IAA, um, International Academy of Astrology faculty. Faculty. Oh, thank you. It's, it's one of the joys of my life. So that's nice to hear. Ah, well, this was an absolutely um, wonderful, informative, and fascinating um, opportunity to um, learn from you and get your take on things. Um, so, thank you so very much for your time and um, sharing all of your your work with us. I'm hoping that. Um, you know, listeners will check out um, the Solar Arcs Directions from the Sun and um, find more um, find more out about um, this technique.
that uh, that you described so so clearly about all the planets basically being um, couriers of the sun. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. I've enjoyed this very much. Thank you. And our next podcast, um, we are launching our releasing our podcast quarterly. So our next one um, will be at the um, Capricorn Cardinal Ingress. So thank you so much, Jody, for being with us here today. Um, and we look forward to having you back at our Cardinal Ingress podcast, uh, which will be um, in December, and possibly to um, the topic we're thinking of at this time is uh, to talk about time twins um, as one of our possible topics. Um, that's great. I would be delighted to do that again. So I look forward to it. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jody. Thank you for having me. And to our listeners, um, again, this is The Cosmic Pulse brought to you by the International Academy of Astrology and your host, Jen Ingress. Bye.